0: Right, hi everyone. Welcome back to Microcast, a production of the American Society of Microbiology, the Texas Medical Center chapter. We're back again with our next episode. So, we're going to do this episode on something a little exciting. So, my name's Aisha. I'm Alex.
1: I'm Celso.
0: And this episode is going to be titled two things, maybe the next <laughs> big pandemic, maybe the infectious disease apocalypse. So, Alex, do you want to give a little bit about what this episode's
2: going to be about? So in this episode, <laughs> we're going to start off with some of the um, epidemics or pandemics we have seen in the past or in the very recent present. And then we are move on to talking about how um, different groups of organisms, whether it, is, whether it is bacteria, viruses or fungi, can become the next pandemic and why they will become the next pandemic. And then most excitingly for all the science fiction fans out there, um uh, we're gonna go over some science fiction movies um that deal with epidemics. Mm-hmm. Like um pandemics, tw- I guess. Yeah, yeah. pandemics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, apocalyptic yeah, pandemics. movies. Exactly. Yeah. Like Contagion, World War Z and like Twenty Eight Days Later. Twenty Eight Days <laughs> yes. Later. And then talk about like whether it it was scientifically sound, um and just kind of discuss about um how the epidemic was portrayed in the movie. Yeah.
0: Right, because I'm sure we've all even seen movies like I Am Legend or Planet of the Apes. Uh So regardless of what actually happens in the movie, I guess they all start with the same premise where there's a new strain of a pathogen that mutates something like a virus or something that's re-engineered. It's fatal, lethal, spreads fast, kills a lot of people. So today we thought it would be a good way to take advantage of things like that to talk about basic microbiology. Mm -hmm. What makes a pathogen a good pathogen? Um, so just to go into the terminology, there's a lot of important public health terminology that people have probably heard on the news, but what exactly is the difference between certain these t- uh, some of these terms? So for example, let's start with the word endemic. So an endemic is a disease that is permanently dominant in a certain geographic location. So it's always problematic in a particular region consistently. So essentially, this is a disease that's always at a baseline and predictable. So you know how many people are going to be impacted by it, at any given time, right? Um, So an example is malaria, for example, a neglected tropical disease that is endemic to certain parts of Africa. Now, an epidemic is the next level, which is essentially an outbreak or a sudden surge in the number of expected disease cases. So any variation or a spike from endemic, uh, where you no longer are, you know, matching whatever the baseline is. So this could be greater than zero cases or greater than 100 cases, right? So even if you have, like a hundred people affected by malaria in a given population, and then you know something happens where you now have ten thousand. Like that's a problem. Um, and then the key being that the outbreak is defined to a very specific, limited geographic area. And for example, a good example would be SARS, the severe acute respiratory syndrome outbreak, that was defined as a really destructive pandemic that nearly took eight hundred lives. But initially, it was very confined to parts of Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did eventually cross geographical constraints, and that segues right into pandemic. So a pandemic is something that might have started out as an epidemic, but spread across multiple countries, continents, and eventually is prominent worldwide. And a great example is HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. um, That is extremely destructive. So now that we have terminology, uh, I guess we're gonna delve into some famous outbreaks through history that would probably jog your memory in terms of why this crazy pandemic scenario that seems crazy now, but has a lot of historical precedents and is not really far fetched. So I guess also we'll yeah. start with you.
1: No, so a lot of this stuff has already happened in the past and as you mentioned this is going to jog your memories because, you know, everyone knows of the infamous black plague, on the black death, right? And this is something that happened during the Middle Ages. You, uh it's uh, I usually it to have occurred between 1347 through 1351, and what happened here was just they think this may have originated in in Central Asia, and because of the amount of traveling between Europe and Asia and parts of Northern Africa, there was a lot of chances for rats infected with these with these fleas that themselves were infected with a bacterium known as Yersinia pestis was uh, were now being able to travel amongst these different uh, regions. So multiple routes. Yeah, of transmission. just multiple routes of transmission, and unfortunately, what this went on to do was that. Uh, 75 to 200 million people in Eurasia were affected by this, and 30 to 60% of Europe's population at the time was killed.
0: This is the entire population of what is modern-day conflict. Yeah, this is a
1: huge, and it had huge ramifications also throughout the history because a lot of the outcome of this actually led on to a lot of the the renaissance and everything else that sort of happened. uh, And afterwards in Europe, all of these changes that occurred and the greater attention to to detail, if you will. Mm -hmm. European history was heavily influenced by, Mm -hmm. by the effect of the Black Plague, and interestingly enough, it was also weaponized uh, in the Mongolian warriors of the Golden Horde hmm. in 1346, were were attacking a city, the city of Kaffa, and the city of Kaffa is in the modern day region of Crimea. And what they did was, they the Mongolian horde that was under siege had attacked, uh, was attacking the city of Kaffa, and what they had done was just that. Uh, they themselves had been exposed to symptoms of the black plague and so their soldiers were dying and they were demoralized and at this point they decided you know what let's grab these infected bodies put it on a catapult, and toss it over the wall into the city. Wow. And once they did that, not only did it demoralize thus the inhabitants of Kaffa from seeing dead bodies flung I at mean, them, they killed, but they it went them, on right. to like, weaken their immune system and kill them. Right. And the Mongolians were able to go on and, and basically right. take over the city. And I guess
0: a similar yeah. method of warfare was also used by, um, by essentially to wipe out Native Americans yeah. and indigenous peoples. Um, as a form of warfare by like, colonizers, I guess. Yes,
1: and actually, uh, this, this happened during the Pontiac's Rebellion. And there's actually a British captain who, was in 1764, uh, during a parlay with the Native American tribe of the Delawares. They, during this parlay, which is otherwise a ceasefire, during this uh, interaction, he specifically used two blankets and a handkerchief to, that had been exposed to smallpox and provided them to the Delawares and as a sort of gift. Mm-hmm. And we know that th- this was done on purpose because they mentioned in their letters, we hope to, come to pass on smallpox to the Native American tribes and hope and run them down. And ridiculously enough, they even sent in an invoice to the British Army to pay back for the two blankets and handkerchief that were lost.
2: That's terrible. And, yeah,
1: and they actually got it paid back.
2: <laughs> okay, <laughs> so. so. <laughs> moving on to more recent examples that are not so de- devastating depressing, or yeah. depressing. Um, we First, um, as Aisha mentioned, we have SARS in 2003. Um, it was eight over 8,000 people got infected, more than 750 died and it spread to more than two dozen countries, including the United States, although in the U.S. only eight ha- we only had eight reported patients. And the epidemic was mainly localized to southern China. In 2009, we had one of the biggest um, pandemics we have seen in history, which is the H1N1 influenza A, um, where there was more than 60.8 million cases. Was case- this avian or swine? This was swine mm-hmm. flu. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I know there was H5N1 and an H1N1, and yeah. I mean, we'll talk about why, but mm-hmm. yeah, It's
2: yeah. interesting. Yeah, so there were 60.8 million cases in the U.S. alone that resulted in over 270,000 hospitalizations and over 12,000 deaths. Wow. Now, globally, there isn't an accurate So estimates. this was
0: U.S. alone? Yes. Oh, okay.
2: Now, there isn't an accurate global um, measurement out there, um, just because different factors can cause um, influenza, like symptoms and death, but people estimate over 200,000 deaths worldwide, Mm -hmm. maybe even up to 400,000. Oh, my God. Okay.
0: So that's half a million people. Exactly. So, I mean, not as devastating as something historically mm-hmm. like the Spanish flu or the Black Plague yeah. that's also just talked about, but still considerable, considerable damage. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I guess now we kind of delve into, you know, people kind of think infectious diseases are a thing of the past. And for example, in the developed world, the developed world, the Western world, or however you want to call it, cardiovascular diseases are the prominent cause of death. So we forget. I guess, personally, um, why infectious diseases have the burden that they have. Um, so really the question is why the things, the scale of the Spanish Flu or Black pay don't happen anymore? The question entirely is inaccurate, mainly because infectious diseases are still devastating for the developing world. In high-income countries, you know, cardiovascular disease, stroke, cancer, Alzheimer's are the most common causes of death. But in developing countries, infectious diseases are still the most common cause of death. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are countries with limited access to basic hygiene, sanitation, medical resources. I mean, for example, you know, tuberculosis alone killed 1.7 million people worldwide in 2016, but the heaviest burden is felt by developing countries, and you have close to 1 million people dying from HIV-AIDS in 2017. So the issue very much remains, so I guess why don't we talk about it, or why don't we focus it as much in our research and in funding. Um, And I guess the reality is because infectious diseases are often overlooked because they have a significant impact that's divided across racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic lines. Mm -hmm. And it really does boil down to whose lives matter, right? And I guess there's a multiple number of reasons why they're not dominant in the developed world. I mean, to simply say significant medical advancements, Mm -hmm. antibiotics, antimicrobials in general, Mm -hmm. uh, but also basic improvements in public sanitation and hygiene. And all things that impoverished countries, primarily recovering from colonialism, um, are struggling with. And, you know, I have to keep in mind history. Most gain independence and liberation um, from, you know, their colonial empires only in the mid to late 1900s, which is just a few decades ago. 1970s. Right, like in our parents' lifetime, you know, which is crazy. So these developing countries are still working towards building a basic infrastructure and implementing basic public health measures because they're just recovering from such a loss of resources and devastation from colonialism so even access to existing medical innovations like antibiotics and vaccines can be very very difficult and really in terms of funding i think we experiences as scientists that we kind of struggle sometimes Mm -hmm. to get funding for infectious diseases and microbiology because Mm -hmm. so much funding in at least the west in terms of america or europe goes to cardiovascular diseases cancer Mm -hmm. and really it's not because the death toll isn't high worldwide it really really is but that's just where the money lies, right? Yeah. And I mean, there are efforts like the Gates Foundation and other, you know, public health resources like for example, the World Health Organization that do give grants to address unmet needs, but really I mean, I don't know what y'all's personal experiences are in terms of funding, but it's a problem. Yeah, yes. it's just not
1: helping us stay ahead of the curve. And that seems to always be the problem when it comes to these sort of pandemics, these infections that sort of hit you. It's mm-hmm. These things happen all of a so sudden. So fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and before we can, and we never stay ahead of the curve. And so right. that's what really, that's what really, uh, I guess, money going into research, that's where it really comes in. Right. We can start learning more about these things and get mm-hmm. an idea of what factors influence their epidemic or pandemic success. Right. And ultimately, we'd be able to sort of predict these things things taking place uh, but as you said you know like there th- there are efforts to sort of help us with that providing funding towards these unmet needs but at the same time it's unfortunately just it hasn't
2: been enough right i think it really has to do more with public awareness that's public, I think, mm-hmm. really important exactly yeah. like if the public demands more research and more attention then the government funding organizations will, will respond. respond to yes, that mm-hmm. good, and it's yeah. not like Infectious diseases are not getting immediate press because we it does because yeah, we've, yeah. we've seen like super bugs that cannot be killed by any known antibiotic right. get on the news, so people right. know about these things,
0: right? It, we and ha- eventually gains traction, exactly. But I mean, yeah. I th- well, so Alex just talked about SARS, for example, and I think he mentioned an important statistic which is like close to 800 people died, but you know, eight reported patients died in the United States mm-hmm. and that's really when you hear about things for example. Exactly. So I mean if you go a really good example is Ebola, which is a virus. It's deadly has killed over 12,000 people in West Africa in under four years Which makes it a big problem, but really people had not heard about it for the exactly. longest time I mean it was devastating But really, it only gained traction, I believe, in 2014, when Mm -hmm. Western healthcare workers from England and Spain contracted it after traveling to West Africa, which meant that it was no longer necessarily an epidemic, and that's when... And it was no longer confined to countries like Liberia, Sierra, Le- Sierra Leone, Nigeria, etc. which is why people started caring because mm-hmm. it was no longer confined mm-hmm. to West Africa, which I think is really concerning. And after that, it was kind of like the ball got rolling and the like, US and the UK started setting up treatment facilities to try to contain the spread. But really people paid attention mm-hmm. after one or two people not from West Africa got infected, I guess, which is a, a consistent problem. Um, and a lot of times when you have a lot of Epidemics that are confined to these countries, impoverished countries, people don't even hear about it. Like, for example, there was a huge measles outbreak in in the Congo that killed 5,000 people. A cholera outbreak in Hispaniola, which is a Caribbean island, that killed Mm -hmm. 10,000. In Zimbabwe in 2009, cholera also killed 5,000. I had not heard of any of these. Exactly. And I'm an infectious disease scientist, Mm -hmm. which just shows the certain, like, severe lack of media coverage, I guess, that goes into it. And the disproportionate... And really, it's because there's such a disproportionate mm-hmm. impact of infectious
3: diseases. Exactly.
2: And the thing is that things like Ebola, cholera, and these are e- a small, ex- are very few examples of a wide variety of diseases that affect my, um, developed, uh, um, developing countries. There are yeah. so many tropical diseases that we don't know about or, don't, or not, that are not studied that affect people in these countries every day. And the, people are, um, we're just starting to understand these diseases, and we need to do more to learn about them.
0: All right, so now we'll transition over to our next exciting segment. Okay, so our next segment is going to be pretty cool. So what we're trying to do is kind of cover microbiology in general. So each of us is going to be assigned a type of pathogen. Um, So as we know, microbial pathogens can be divided into bacteria, viruses, parasites, fungi, And what we're gonna do is vouch for whether we think they are primed to be culprits in the next big pandemic. And we're going to go through clear categories or characteristics of a pathogen, any pathogen, that will make it ideal for a widespread outbreak. And um, a lot of these uh, categories I've actually gotten from a study by Johns Hopkins University that is actually called characteristics of microorganisms most likely to cause a global pandemic, which is really helpful, so we have good uh, sources of info. And I guess we'll start with the first category. So I'm doing viruses. Um, so the first category is in order to be a good pathogen that can kill a lot of people, it just has to be easily transmissible, so transmission. Um, so. So viruses are you know, a unique microbe primarily because they rely on a living host to be able to replicate and be infectious. Uh, they can persist outside a host, but they can't make copies of, th- of them themselves or carry out any cellular process. Now for a virus to be easily transmissible, it has to be you know, very contagious, spread really fast, and um, with limited contact. So most studies on viruses really show that the best mode of transmission is respiratory, uh, which already many viruses use, like SARS, uh, coronavirus, or the influenza virus, Ideally, multiple modes of transmission are ideal. So if you can have something that aerosolizes also persists on multiple mm-hmm. surface, also has multiple vectors of transmission, mm-hmm. like you know like you said, rodents yeah. and fleas and birds and pigs, that's ideal. Um, so for example, uh, in the developed world where we are deeply interconnected and have like internal air circulating systems, respiratory would be the most successful, but maybe in the developing world, fecal oral because of lack yes. of hygiene, so it really depends on the setting also. Um, but ideally, the idea is to have bugs persist in the environment for as long as possible, and in person contact spread would be easiest and I guess just having things aerosolize and be present mm-hmm. in the environment yeah. so we can breathe it in
2: exactly so I guess next alex so i 'm working i 'm going to vouch for bacteria here. Um, <clears throat> the interesting thing about bacteria is that there's so many ways it can be trans, um, it can be transmitted a- across populations. Or even across species. And so I'm going to divide it into mainly three parts foodborne, waterborne, and airborne. So, and all of them, all, all of these categories are, have bad bacteria that can kill you. Um, there's foodborne bacteria like C. botulinum that has a deadly bot- the Botox toxin, mm-hmm. and you can ingest food that has been contaminated with this bacteria and it causes a, a fatal in- a infection. There's also waterborne diseases like the famous cholera, or salmonella, mm-hmm. and there's also airborne infections that can be caused by tuberculosis, mm-hmm. and um, streptococcus pneumoniae that causes pneumonia, or meningitis, bacteria.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's really hard to say what <laughs> the next <laughs> what, pan- What
0: your favorite, I guess, is, mode of transmission-wise? Yeah.
2: Yes. He, just because all these bacteria are really famous for being bad, and just can cause very dangerous infections, but I guess for the purposes of causing a pandemic, mm-hmm. airborne bacteria will cost the right. most um, threats just because how easy it easier is pa- easier mode of transmission. Yeah, just because that means close to close human contact mm-hmm. will be able to cause uh, an infection. Um, like tuberculosis is one of the um, one of the most um, dangerous bacteria out there that can be transmitted by airborne and transmission. Yeah. Okay, so and
1: so, I mean, I'm looking at both uh, parasites and fungi. And in terms of, like, fungi, for example, as one might imagine, they depend a lot on just their ability to sort of, like, uh, uh, produce spores. And mm. so we're talking about airborne over here. And while at the same time there are some fungi that are capable of, um, that one could say, well, uh, waterborne if, mm-hmm. in quote-unquote, just in the sense because they will release spores into the water and so forth, they're really not that successful in the water. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, the thing about fungi is that, as you mentioned before, like the direct human contact does come into play whenever you get these spores sort of on the skin or anything like that, or you might inhale them. Uh, and this influences a lot highly, de- highly populated regions, such as de- in developing countries. Mm-hmm. And so, fungi can be successful dep- uh, depending on the geography, depending on where they're at. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've seen with uh, with some of the fungi right now. Uh, one particularly known as Batrachochytrium dendrobatidis, for example. <laughs> it's just obliterating amphibian populations. Absolutely, about 30% of uh, of amphibian populations have either gone through massive decline or But restricted extinct. to amphibian populations. Yeah, it's okay. currently restricted a to amphibians. No <laughs> yeah, yet. okay. So amphibians, so we're talking about just like frogs <laughs> right, or, right. And, and salamanders and whatnot. And this is, and so it just shows sort of their effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, parasites, on the other hand, we're talking about something that has multiple life cycles over here. And so what they can do is their their mode of transmission is pretty tricky. They can be one life cycle that's pretty good enough for it right. to go for for it to go inside of a fly, mm-hmm. uh, and then within the fly they enter another life cycle, and then the fly can then be sub. Uh, uh, can then go and infect a human host mm-hmm. and which is something we see with the African sleeping sickness mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, it's called the titi
3: fly, yeah, the right?
0: Titi fly. Yeah, the titi <laughs> we fly. We all heard of like and, the sleeping sickness. And there's also
1: some other parasites that actually use, for example, the using the sand fly mm-hmm. and this one's actually really bad too because the sand fly unfortunately is able to get past a lot of the mosquito nets. It's not typically inhibited by that. Mm-hmm. So motor transmission wise, I would say that parasites. Have, yeah, parasites oh. that can use these, these vectors, these right. sort of uh, carriers because right. uh, they can go, they can and it's not just with flies, I mean, they can be within... Right. Most famously,
0: malaria, yeah, I mo- guess, with mosquitoes.
1: Exactly. And so I think parasites, in terms of transmission, just because we're talking about developing countries, highly populated, and just economy is all more mm-hmm. often than not on the down, and so mm-hmm. just very difficult situation. I would say that parasites are probably, uh, more so than fungi, are going yeah. to be mm-hmm. a bigger factor in really transmission, yeah.
2: Right. If I may point out something, I think it is important to note that Defending bacteria here that, like, <laughs> while viruses and parasites typically live on a host, right? Because uh-huh. the viruses are not alive, they have to be on a host, right? Um, bacteria are everywhere and they're right. alive. Yes. And they're everywhere, right? And they
0: we, do have that advantage, exactly.
2: Yeah. They're in your water supply, they're on your hands right, right. now, they're in right. your body, they're on your desk, they're everywhere, right. and we can't sure. get rid of them. Sure. I mean, that's what makes cholera, for example, yeah.
0: so dangerous, because if you have one water supply going through an entire exactly. town, yeah. how do you possibly clear that up, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why so many people die, because bacteria yeah. are unique in that they can persist on things mm-hmm. and don't need necessarily vectors like malaria needs, you know, mosquitoes, mm-hmm. or, yeah. or they can, you know, for example, they can persist on rodents and fleas, mm-hmm. but... You know, just it's they're unique in that way. Like viruses, yeah. not necessarily persisting on hard surfaces or anything. Um, so I think that's pretty unique. Um, okay, so the next category is, um, I guess, transmis- transmission in terms of how uh, like sleek it is, or um, so we call it like incubation period. So for example, most pathogens can persist in a host for a really long time without causing any symptoms which can be fairly dangerous. So for a virus, for example, HIV can persist without causing any issues for anything between one to 10 years, mm-hmm. which is terrifying because in that time, they are still, you know, people are still contagious. Um, now, if they can be transmitted to that, during that time frame, there is no warning, no symptoms, so there, there are no efforts to treat this person or even quarantine or contain it. Um, so Ebola virus, for example, um, is the other end where, uh, the incubation time isn't as long, but it doesn't shed, which means that it's not transmissible the mm-hmm. time that it's in that incubation period. But polio virus, for example, even though it can be, you know, the incubation period is shorter, it's dormant up to 20 days. In that time, though, when they're not the the host itself that's been infected is not experiencing any symptoms, they are still actively shedding and infecting other people, mm-hmm. which I think can be. And I think a, when we talk about the movies, that's going to be an important thing, but a very important key thing to be successful as a pathogen is that you need to be able to infect for long enough where you are almost hidden and in camouflage to be able to transmit fast,
2: mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. so. I think that is a very interesting topic for bacteria too, just because bacteria are everywhere and they are not always pathogenic. Mm-hmm. For example, we have potentially pathogenic bacteria already living inside us mm-hmm. in every single human. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for, and... Depending on the situation these bacteria can become pathogenic in the future So we in a sense kind of have it like when you're immunocompromised exactly yeah. right. you have kind of a ticking time bomb inside for example like We there's a bacteria called Clostridium difficile mm-hmm. um, or C. Mm-hmm. diff as, as people call it that are in our intestines <clears throat> And if we take antibiotics that removes um, all the non-resistant bacteria out of our system, then C. diff can take over because it is drug-resistant, mm-hmm. and then we will have a, a severe C. diff infection. Mm-hmm. So depending on the circumstance, even non-pathogenic bacteria that we call commensal bacteria in our gut or in our or in a microbiota can become pathogenic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and
1: along those lines, actually, you end up finding a couple of fungi like uh, that do a similar thing, similar mm-hmm. like, for example, the Canada species, mm-hmm. which they... Uh, they are typically a, a sort of what you could call a good member of our normal microbiome uh, within our bodies but at the same time in situations similar to what as you mentioned like whether it be uh, treatment that might get that might I guess open up more space for uh, for candidates to, I guess just uh, spread out just to colonize mm-hmm. even more because now let's say you're immunocompromised you've lost a good amount of other bacteria well canada would be able to now go on and over colonize mm-hmm. and what this does is it can lead to obviously a lot of the one of the biggest problems in hospitals uh is uh bloodstream infections due mm-hmm. to uh, candidiasis mm-hmm. and so that well i guess
0: do you think yeah. that's good for a pandemic though
1: well that well, the, i guess just uh fungi and parasites are really when it comes to, i guess host persistence parasites are very are, are, are Pretty quick. Okay. Uh, one of the things about them is that one, they're pretty good at camouflage, mm-hmm. and so by the time you notice, uh, you notice it's a, it's a certain parasites. It's already too late. Mm-hmm. They've already like, for example, the brain-eating amoeba. Mm-hmm. By the time you notice the, those symptoms, it's already chewing, literally right. chewing you through your brain. Yeah. You know, the, the brain-eating amoeba, the, the otherwise known as neglaria falari. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about the African sleeping sickness with the with, with the parasite um, Trypanosoma brucei, mm-hmm. and it's usually by the time you it's already but by, by the time you show symptoms, it's already in your central nervous system. And so these guys actually take a, a couple of days to sort of go in, do their job, and get out. Mm-hmm. And so parasites are pretty quick in their actions. Uh, Fungi, on the other hand, are probably the only ones, as I mentioned, with Canada, that technically can sort of persist, but then again, other types right. of fungi can also Transmission just and Infect, everything yeah. Just, yeah, they can not just not infect, in a matter of days, they right. won't take you out, so Yeah, so, yeah,
0: so I guess Fungi, they vary yeah, I guess fungi aren't that bad in terms of, at least the commensals, mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of spreading rapidly and killing people. I guess it's very host-dependent and, mm-hmm. you know, yes, very much exactly. at naive, immunocompromised hosts. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next thing is a matter of big debate, I guess. So virulence, pathogenicity, how fast can it kill? Which is a matter of big debate, because do you ideally want something that can kill really fast, but then that means it's not going to spread that fast? Um, so I guess the, the ideal is to have something that has a fairly high fatality rate, but also a really long incubation time. So that would allow it to be persistent in a host for a really long time, allow for a lot of people to get it, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people to die, which is the ideal. If something just infects you and kills you really fast, then you're not going to spread that. Um, And it's really easy to quarantine people that have active symptoms that develop really fast, you know what's going on, quarantine, containment. Um, so that's really not a good pathogen in terms of pandemics, I guess. I mean, this is terrible for us to talk about. but
1: Yeah, and we're yeah. talking about successful pathogens, right? Right, right, Yeah, right, we're right. talking about successful in Well, well, right. su- Yeah, successful what in would the lead sense, to their more, to, the, to, to I guess, the success as a pandemic factor? Right, mm-hmm. this yeah. is very
0: pandemic, yeah. right? So there are a lot of pathogens that have, you know, up to like 100% fatality rate. Yeah. yeah. But it's just one person is dying, we're not talking about on a scale of a pandemic, yeah. I guess. So ideally, something with a high, high mortality rate, but the time to death, I've realized. Mm-hmm is what really matters and this might be the same for for all pathogens Mm -hmm. regardless of what they are but I mean ideally if you're going to be some if you're going to kill too fast you're just going to burn out in a small geographical region. Yeah. You're not really going to have time to have people transmit over continents and over geographical borders I guess. Which is why HIV is such an ideal virus because I mean years, people years and travel and exactly. It, and, you know and this is why people don't even realize they have they have onset of symptoms for so long and they've been transmitting it. Um so I guess and it has a high case fatality rate. So people do die when they have HIV-AIDS, right? So mm-hmm. so it is something that kills, but doesn't kill fast enough. So it has time to spread, I guess. So do y'all have anything to add to that, I guess, no, I from mean, a perspective? I guess that's yeah, pretty I general. Guess, I, mean, yeah. Yeah.
1: I guess, yeah, you, that, that all those apply, and I guess you also had to factor in just, I guess... Um just a geographical dependence in the sense that if we're talking about very like something in a very highly populated area Mm. even if you do kill fast well it's highly populated so more than likely Mm. if one of your symptoms that you're inducing is vomiting or whatnot well yeah you're still likely to infect others because you're in highly populated regions maybe by bodies of water that a lot of people use and so forth Right. i guess that would be a
0: really devastating like epidemic yeah
1: those are more things that like that might be more isolated but technically in the sense of success you're very successful as so a pathogen, yeah right. as, an, as a more of an epidemic
2: okay or like one of the more important factors i think is the movement in and out of that geographic region exactly. like <clears throat> even if the incubation period is like two days uh, people keep moving in and out right. of that region then we just can't track it anymore it just right. spreads immediately right. like patient zero to like how does yeah. it even? exactly yeah. that can be people moving that can be um products moving animals moving exactly food moving water moving Mm -hmm.
1: yeah and i guess like just to to your point like tourist attraction sites i mean a lot of the developed countries that we talk about being whatnot i mean they're also very beautiful countries Mm -hmm. and they are tourist attractions Mm -hmm. that's one of the bigger uh sort of uh, I guess even like when you, you mentioned Clostridium difficile, mm-hmm. well C. diff, that was traveler's diarrhea is the name right. that it's associated with, right? right? Mm-hmm. And so that's literally because it's in very attractive sites in the sense of like a tourist des- destinations and people will go and even if it only takes two days for symptoms to show, or well, if you're just passing by on a layover or whatnot, that's long enough for you to bring it back.
0: Right, so the next big category is treatment. It has to be something that is really hard to treat and both preventative and curative, right? So Mm -hmm. preventative like vaccines, curative like antimicrobials. So I guess with viruses, RNA viruses are ideal based on like all of the research that has been done, primarily because they have a really high genetic mutation rate, Mm -hmm. allowing them to evolve really fast, which always keeps them ahead of the curve in terms of drugs and vaccines. Mm -hmm. And I mean, something as simple as the flu does this all the time, right? So when we develop a vaccine for the flu, we basically have to predict which types which strains of the flu are circulating around the world, and then we have a particular vaccine that immunizes people against those particular strains. But the moment you have a particular strain that just changes and mutates really fast and is no longer in that coverage of the vaccine, it doesn't matter, right? So, yeah. and, that's and that's exactly something, what happened with
2: H1N1, right? Right, yeah. right,
0: right, and exactly. With viruses, I think that's really common because vaccines immunize against specific proteins that are on the surfaces of these viruses, and if viruses can mutate really fast and change those mm-hmm. proteins, they are no longer, Recognizable you know. by. Exactly. Yeah, so by the yeah, antibodies no longer recognize them, which is mm-hmm. like how vaccines are made. And with viruses, there are a lot less antivirals than there are in terms of like, for example, antibiotics mm-hmm. for bacteria. Yeah. So that automatically means that the, you know, your, your armory that you're starting off with is, is very small. So if something develops resistance, then you don't really have anything to go to. So I guess with bacteria, that's also a huge problem now in terms of resistance.
2: Yes. So we have um drugs called antibiotics that we prescribe to patients who have bacterial infections the issue is resistance that many bacteria species and especially the ones that can be pathogenic are now resistant and the cdc keeps a list of these bacteria and to name a few mrsa methicillin resistant staphylococcus or pseudomonas aeruginosa or um Vancomycin-resistant um, ent- Enterobacter. Yes. Enterococci. 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 Oh, sorry. Enter- and <laughs> <Enterococci. laughs> I only know so. that because I work on them. Sorry. <laughs> I was gonna say something about Enterobacter later. Um, yeah. But yeah, they have this. They, we already have this list of probably ten to twenty um, bacteria that are already resistant and are dangerous. And I mentioned this earlier, but in September 2016, a woman died of a carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteraceae. Bacteria B- <laughs> C-A? Actually, it's actually pronounced Bacteria, yeah, bacteria, bacteria C, C huh? it's C, it's not a C-A. Yeah. Really? Yeah, Yeah. yeah. yeah it's Stand C. Out. Really? Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. C? Yeah. C is not C-A. The a- yeah, the A-E the won't,
2: isn't pronounced like, yeah, it wouldn't be C A. Yeah.
0: Huh. <laughs> it's
2: spelled that way though, right? Yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> okay. But it's some Latin thing. It's <laughs> yeah. some Latin yeah. yeah. Those guys. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> <those> guys. <laughs> And that bacteria was already resistant to most, but now it was resistant to all available antibiotics. So that was... Was this here, like the US or so? It was in the United yeah. States. And the issue with carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae is that it, among all those bacteria out there, it is the most likely to be pan-resistant, resistant to all antibiotics. So that is really a red flag there. But also the issue is that a lot of the last resort or, mo- or most effective drugs out there, such as vancomycin for staph or carbapenin for enterobacteria C are becoming resistant. Yeah. Uh, so that is a huge issue. And some, I, I, I talk to my friends about it, and then some people just ask why I can just increase the dosage or just start mixing everything together, <laughs> yeah. just yeah. giving well, it to patients. Work. <laughs> yeah. And the issue that doesn't work is, is if you increase the dosage, in dosage enough, it may kill the bacteria, but that will also kill you too. Because yeah. antibiotics are toxic molecules and you will cause kidney failure or liver failure if you if you put too much into a patient and at that point the antibiotics kills you faster than the mm-hmm. bacteria and you don't want that mm-hmm. so
1: yeah take into account there are more cells in your body even when you're sick there are more cells in your body than just what's attacking you exactly, they're also your yeah. own cells and right. they're also oh, yeah you're also you subjecting them, them right. to to harm right mm-hmm. and so and i will actually say that when it comes to treatment options i think parasites and fungi take this one and the reason why, <laughs> the reason why they, they will be very successful is because we know very little. Especially agree, for parasites. Yeah, we, we know parasites, so, yeah, we like know almost nothing. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. because, uh, and you you brought this problem up before, Aisha, where uh, we're, we're, it's been just a lack of research, research into these things. So we yeah. don't, and because it's so isolated sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, it's so specific to certain Geographically, regions
3: yeah.
0: that
1: it's just not... Uh, that is just not studied. So we know nothing, almost nothing, about mm-hmm. a lot of really deadly parasites with with greater than ninety five percent, almost a hundred percent mortality. Yep. And we know absolutely nothing of how they work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and for fungi, the ones that we are very familiar with, we also see that uh, that they're also resistant to a lot of antifungal compounds. And now that's a really big issue as well, just because, well similar to bacteria, which are now displaying a lot of antibiotic resistance. We got, even of the few fungi that we are very well aware of, they're also quite resistant to antifungal mm-hmm. compounds. And so I would say when it comes to treatment options, parasites and fungi would definitely be the take, most uh, successful Take the cherry on the cake. <laughs> category because of a lack of knowledge in how they really work.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so we have two categories left and then we'll go into movies. So really quickly, host response. I mean, I think this is very general, but really the host shouldn't have the ability to fight it off or immune system going to overdrive which both can kill it so not Mm -hmm. enough way too much
1: yes so i guess when you say not enough you mean camouflage right like well
0: it's just not able to mount a response Mm -hmm. right Uh, not able to clear the infection just not good enough not able to develop any kind of response whether it is you know basic host defense systems Mm -hmm. innate immunity or adaptive immunity or Mm -hmm. too much cytokine storm right yeah Yeah. you just go into shock septic shock Mm -hmm. um and I think that's really it in terms of hosts. And I think the other thing is, y'all mentioned this, it should be able to infect people that are not immunocompromised, also. Yes.
1: Yeah. And I guess when you say when you say, when you're you overdrive, just to, to further clarify, we're not just talking about the the cytokine storm or this immune cell sort of storm. It's not just bad because you're overworking your body. Mm-hmm. It's also bad because you're in yourself. this, yeah, you're attacking yourself. Mm-hmm. You have way too many guys out there just sort of trying right. to fight off this pathogen, and at some point they just start attacking everything because right. everything starts being right. recognized as as a as a, as a as foreign a agent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's when those sort of like overdrives of the immune cells really become a become right. an issue.
0: Too much, too little. Yeah. yeah. And I think the last one that we have is, is a the cooler category, which is climate change. Um, so mm-hmm. this is something that we, us three, came up with. Not mm-hmm. necessarily something that's been researched, but I think is very cool. Mm-hmm. Primarily because we're in this era where, you know, we are, we are moving towards a trend where we have such a stagnant shift in climate change where, you know, temperatures are increasing, things mm-hmm. are getting hotter. And what that means is... Previous areas that used to be geographically isolated are no longer geographically isolated. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're talking about, for example, the polar ice caps that are melting. And how does that contribute maybe to Mm -hmm. pathogen spread? And I mean, I guess the simplest thing is things, pathogens that we've never ever been exposed to or have no idea Mm -hmm. that exist Mm -hmm. that are buried under the tundra Mm -hmm. are like viruses, you know, a lot of times that can persist are now, you know, now the things are polarized caps are melting and people actually have contact with water and oceans mm-hmm. that are coming from those glaciers and polarized caps that we could possibly be exposed to those things. And, oh.
2: oh, it's also the temperature rising, right, exactly. because mm-hmm. yeah. we see uh, with, the, with the global temperature rising, areas that w- would have never been affected by pathogens because they're too cold mm-hmm. are now being affected by it. For example, like, Zika virus is cu- is rising is coming up to the continental United States because it is getting warmer.
1: Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm yeah you're basically now certain yeah certain areas so that, they're moving they're yeah like because exactly. something is
0: like an ideal niche and then something exactly. else is becoming an ideal exactly. niche.
1: exactly yeah. we're basically creating this micro environment before something was secluded to mm-hmm. uh, tropical rainforest or something like that but then as areas mm-hmm. start as hum- higher humidity higher temperature all these other factors are now appearing in areas of say northern europe or something mm-hmm. like that and all of a sudden these same environments are becoming just the perfect spot for
3: mm-hmm.
1: for something that was further much further south in the past, and so right. and so that's sort of the the difficulty for the for the issue of this where we think we're safe because a lot of these things are geographically isolated, but with global warming, you do have that problem of global warming is essentially creating a, a increasing expanding the size of the geographically isolated niches and mm, that's mm-hmm. the that's sort of the danger that that comes especially
0: about. i guess with neglected tropical diseases yeah right? and Definitely. that's like yeah. that
1: really is the issue because fungi do very well in high humidity high temperature environments and, and one parasites thing, yeah <laughs> parasites as well and as i mentioned earlier like you know we're talking about something that we know very little mm-hmm. about and so i guess at the end of the day as this sort of stuff becoming more of a problem hopefully more research will go into these guys to potentially find out more about them right but the connection between infectious diseases yeah. and climate change yeah. exactly there's a very intricate connection with it and there's a and I would suggest to anyone listen to really go out and just look into there's been some very good studies on just sort of uh, previously uh, diseases now appearing in europe or mm. north america and whatnot that mm. were previously never a factor
0: right and i mean to end it off i guess that is really what we could advocate for that you know something that would cause the next big pandemic doesn't necessarily have to be something that came out of the blue mm-hmm. it could be something that people are no longer used to so for yeah. example mm-hmm. something as small as smallpox Right? So something that no one is vaccinated for anymore, especially in the developing the developed world. Yes. And something that is kills fast, transmits fast. I mean, if that could just be out there, you know, that's scary. Something like yeah. malaria, mm-hmm. especially uh-huh. malaria in the developed world, people would not know how to deal with that. You know, nobody understands, you know, how to contain things like that. And if something like that in terms of climate change shifted here, mm-hmm. I think that would be yeah, truly be devastating. devastating. Yeah. Um, so now we're, we'll move on, I guess, to the most exciting segment. Movies. Movies. Yeah. Okay, so oh, how we'll sure. go about this, I guess. Each of us are going to take five minutes. Um, I think a little less than five minutes. We were in 40 minutes, so hopefully each of us can take five minutes, no more,
3: okay. <laughs> um, yeah. we'll to talk try. about,
0: um, quickly give a summary of what happened, and then talk about what you <coughs> thought was scientifically accurate and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. Okay, so who wants to go first? I guess,
1: uh, let's say, my movies, there first... Is the, I guess was made in two thousand three. Yeah, let's go like in order. Yeah, do we can go chronologically. Um, sure. Yeah, so just because you can also see how. Uh, scientific accuracy got better over time that's well <laughs> well <so laughs> relatively depends. speaking right yeah. okay so okay we'll see how ridiculous oh, how ridiculous i guess how interesting the premise of my movie is so mm-hmm. i had 28 days later mm-hmm. now this is a cult movie i love it i'm a big fan of uh, zombie movies oh also
0: spoilers if you have not watched 28 days later contagion yeah. or world war z you probably should stop right now <laughs> and just trust that we're gonna have a really cool ending. yeah
1: <laughs> okay. It's also worth it. Just go rewatch it. But so I rewatched uh 28 days later, of course. You know, the first time I watched it, I was always I was always impressed by it. And the second time watching it now as a scientist, I'm just kind of like, "Oh my god, this is ridiculous." But it's still a fun movie. Anyway, so what happens is you have this uh this scientist in Cambridge. They were trying to understand uh, sort of popular uh, pop anger so they're trying to understand how to better sort of do a population control if you will mm-hmm. and they were using primates uh, monk- monkeys or chimps I guess uh, they're using primates to uh, as study subjects right mm-hmm. and they're basically trying to understand the effects of rage basically uh, they, they they the idea is they get these uh, these primates in in a very in a state of very high high rage if mm-hmm. you will mm-hmm. and then they look into methods of sort of uh Acquiescing, or you know, just like sort of calming them down, and whatever, right? Okay. Yeah, and so this is that. That's basically what they that's wanted the to study. The premise okay. was just they were trying to to learn how to better inhibit or lessen the impact of of anger, protests, and whatnot. You know, like, and so the in the beginning of the movie, you see this primate just with all these like electrodes attached, and it's looking and it's watching these videos of. Protests and people throwing Molotov cocktails. Everywhere. it's just pretty much everyone's really angry. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what happens is these uh pro these uh protesters uh, these uh, activists who are against uh, the the usage of animals as test subjects, they uh, sneak into the facility at Cambridge. And what they do, they end up. Um, they end up actually trying to release some of these primates in, in an effort to help them or save them, if you will. Okay, as, as like
0: Planet of the Apes? Yeah, exactly. Okay.
1: But unfortunately, uh, you know, one of the scientists that happens to be there is yells, oh no, they're contagious. So <laughs> one, what do they
0: have, a virus? So,
1: well, the idea is that somehow they don't, this is how ridiculous the premise is. The, the scientist know. just yells out, this is the first two minutes gives the entire scientific, quote-unquote, accuracy of the movie. Uh-huh. It's never referenced again. The scientist just claims, that they infected them with a virus uh-huh. that promotes rage. Okay, yeah, says, very similar yeah, to and the. Yeah, and just say we eights, infected, guess, like infected them. them yeah, yeah, they we they, they just say we infected them with rage. One bite and oh, it was saliva the and the The rage contagious. virus. Yeah, the okay. rage virus Exactly. And uh, now I get the reference because <laughs> I yeah, have to watch twenty eight exactly. days later. Well and, okay. and you know, as they open the they open the cage of the Primus, the Primus runs out, out and, and the bites brain. the and bites the person. And now that's now the
0: big apocalyptic yeah. event. And you right? know,
1: you got this like in ten seconds they transform or until they, they morph into the and this is just a very So is this uh, a zombie? Heist, zombie yeah, it's movie? a zombie movie. Okay,
0: so basically people get infected with this rage virus and they become like a zombie like a zombie. Right. And they bite other people, that's how it They
1: become a zombie, yeah. So it's a
0: zombie infectious
1: disease-ish movie. Yeah. And so I would say that, you know, for a movie in 2003, the scientific accuracy was really just about the fact that they used (laughs) primates as test subjects or something (laughs) at most. But as far as anything regarding, like, uh, you Potential impressed. virus. No, but it was a fun movie to watch, for of course. But okay. at the same time, not nah, There was a lot. There was no science really behind it other than they used the word virus at some point. Okay.
0: <laughs> and even in terms of the movie, like, progressing, they didn't talk much about the science? No,
1: not at all. Okay. They literally just said, oh, we don't know the cure. And at most what they did was they would capture some of these infected individuals and just study their behavior. They would notice that they might lie dormant when there's no uninfected host that they might go and try to bite. Mm-hmm. But they were, you know, they were sensitive to sound. Very Basically, similar to like yeah.
0: all zombie movies yeah exactly yeah. So it was
1: very cliche in that sense but you know of course this is 2003 one, right. of, one one of the ones that was sort of trying to add a little bit more science to it I didn't feel like it did a fantastic enough job but it was definitely still a cool fun. Mm-hmm. but yes and so the rage virus is their premise okay so
2: I think the next Alex... one is your. Oh me actually. okay cool World War Z, 2005. okay that's
0: a good I guess that's a good transition oh, wow. yeah so it I is, a, it little is. Later, yeah. a little later a little later uh, I mean, I personally want to say Contagion is probably the most accurate, so I'm going to give that warning. Mm-hmm. Okay, so World War Z, very similar to what Celso just talked about. Okay, it is essentially a zombie apocalyptic movie, but the zombies are because they are people that have been infected with this crazy virus. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially, what happens is uh, there is a virus that there is a virus that maybe jumped reservoirs, a zoonosis event, animal to human. And it's something that spreads really fast when, when a person has it, they become a zombie, they bite other people, so on and so forth. Very similar premise. The microbiology of the movie is truly silly, <laughs> but the epidemiology actually might be more accurate. Yes. Um, so if you do have a newly emerging virus, it can definitely spread really fast because the population has no immunity to it. Mm-hmm. So there in the movie, there is a clearer transmission, right? So bites, which is fine, okay? If we just for just just, yeah, suspend disbelief, okay. Uh-huh. Um, but the thing that that, uh, that that really, really bothers me is, you know, once a person is bit, it takes 10 seconds. Yes. Yeah. And Brad Pitt, so Brad Pitt is the, is, the, is the you know star in the movie, and he counts <laughs> multiple times yes. yeah. from one to ten, so literally from the time that a person is is, is bit uh-huh. till they have a full manifestation of symptoms. And sure. I mean full neurological symptoms, like mm-hmm. they are now a full-on zombie. They have no control over their behavior, full-on aggression, and complete neurological deficits, right, which is bull for those, like, in terms of, we just talked so much about incubation period, which I think is important, because in terms of the microbiology, there is no way any kind of pathogen, regardless of what kind, could possibly, especially because this is a virus, I guess, in the movie, replicate, hijack the host cell's machinery, in your body long enough to make proteins or whatever is necessary Mm -hmm. to actually cause damage in the body for this in this case (laughs) it has to be something that crosses the blood brain barrier goes into your brain and basically changes you know who you are your Mm -hmm. behavior right complete like completely impossible for it to have that full manifestation of pathogenesis so sure viruses have varying incubation times but they are days to years not seconds right it is just crazy
1: and even like what is the infectious dose that you can even provide to someone if you just bite them right you know like, right. like right. high right. A just, of a dose of i mean of animals virus. do
0: it right that's yeah. how you get rabies mm-hmm. so that's fine you could definitely pass things by bite i mean really you know
1: No, like no no i mean i, I understand that, but i'm saying like I mean, it would be a ridiculously high infectious dose for the,
2: for that change to occur in 10 10 seconds yeah that's not impossible that would really just cause unlikely. a shock not possible. Just, there's no the fact way that, like yeah. ha- it spreads exclusively by biting right yeah. Yeah. right not, and now because so. brad pitt i know he ingests some blood no he got in his mouth right yeah right that, yeah. that didn't
0: do it he said and that makes doesn't make sense because in terms of transmission exactly. if it is some it's usually something very specific right mm-hmm. like you just really need that particle or that yeah. microbe in your body mm-hmm. and for example aerosolized you're breathing it in body fluids right so yeah. either sexual transmission or mm-hmm. like you blood. know blood yeah. blood very common blood dirty needles like things like that you need basically it to be in your body mm-hmm. so it doesn't make sense to me how yeah. Brad Pitt had like blood in his mouth and that was fine yeah. but mm-hmm. the fact that you know someone like you need a bite, which was, like, very, like, sexy, but not accurate. And I guess uh, something, like, I guess important to point out is, is there anything that could actually cause a zombie-like symptom? Mm -hmm. Which is, so, you know, people can get meningitis and encephalitis, right? So pathogens can cross the blood-brain barrier. But not that level of like rage and aggression, really (laughs) not really well documented. So, I mean, rabies, for example, is something that people associate with where the animal itself that have rabies are very aggressive. Mm -hmm. So it is possible in the animal kingdom, at least. But in terms of people, it usually makes people very sleepy and disoriented, Um, not necessarily anything that I can think of in terms of rabies. Um, I mean, so you have, like, cattle and raccoons and other animals that can become very rabid yeah. when they have infectious diseases. So maybe something like that manifests in people. Maybe. Um, there is um, a parasite, Toxoplasmosis gondii, yeah. which there was a really cool study. Um, it's not a it's not a virus, but, you know, a cool study that showed that mice that are infected by this parasite are more aggressive in that they actively start seeking out cats mm-hmm. and biting them, and they have less fear, which interesting, right? Not too much, too much basis to it in terms of people, but some basis in terms of animals. Um, And really in terms of, so I want to say in terms of microbiology, bacteria and viruses and other pathogens are very good at using their host to manipulate them to get them to do what they want. Mm -hmm. So for example, there's been a lot of studies recently published about how bacteria and viruses can use our gut brain neural circuitry to control whether we eat or not eat. Um, Because one or the other is advantageous for them to persist so they can literally a single protein can make you want to eat more or eat less Which I think is very cool way to show how pathogens can use something like a single protein to control such complex neurological Circuitry right so possible but in terms of like all-out aggression I don't think that's really reasonable so and the last but not least the way he saves the world.
2: That was amazing.
1: Yeah.
0: Is uh, <laughs> amazing <laughs> for like from yes amazing from a
2: scientific
1: standpoint of like they thought about
0: right. This. So the, what yeah. really happens? I'm so sorry, spoilers. The way he saves the world is Brad Pitt basically realizes that you know the only way there have to have there has to be a weakness, which is accurate, right? Yeah. Every pathogen yeah, has, has, has a weakness, weakness. Yeah. but. So what he does is he goes uh, to what the WHO facility the WHO. Mm-hmm. Um, in, like, where? Ireland uh, or um, yeah, somewhere? Scotland. 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 Scotland yeah. um, and he infects himself with a lethal but curable bacteria. Mm-hmm. So basically, he is no longer an ideal host for a virus because virus rely on healthy hosts to be able to replicate, transmit, persist. Sexy idea, but really just there's no mechanism by which <laughs> a host or anyone or anything could detect infection in someone that fast because yes. he literally infects himself, mm-hmm. and maybe thirty yeah. seconds later <laughs> goes head on with the zombie, also- and the zombie avoids him, well, yeah, which is a
3: beautiful,
0: just- beautiful <laughs> wow. for the visual. It uh-huh. was badass, yeah. right? Yeah, because he just walks out of the uh, walks out of the facility, W H O facility, and all of these <laughs> zombies are running around him yeah. and dodging him because he's not an ideal host. Mm-hmm. The, the The idea is good in yes. that viruses, especially because they depend, or parasites do look for healthy hosts, but there is no mechanisms thus far that we think of where they can detect it that fast.
1: Yeah, yes. the detection was definitely odd, and, I, and if I'm not mistaken, I think like, uh, I, I think just just to, to mention a tip, I think he actually waited, like he infected himself, and I think you're you right that 30 seconds later, we see the CM from walking out, but I think he, like he sat down for a while, he, like, oh, he, sits maybe down, he did for He just got to sit just yeah. sort of waiting until like the zombie. And at one point he decides, you know screw this. I'm just going to go and try it. Yeah, he didn't symptoms. develop symptoms. He just right. sort of sat for a while. Waited. Yeah. He waited for a while, but it doesn't give you an idea of how long it had been that he waited. Right. So you're right. It could have been 30 seconds, right. or it could have been like right. an hour. And also, but either if way, you're a crazy no, zombie,
0: and I mean you are something with a crazy like brain infection, like encephalitis, and you have like psychosis, there is no way you're gonna yeah. be able to detect that in another healthy human. That's just not possible, yeah. right? So, I mean, it's okay. The movie was fine. It was great. I like sexy that. movie. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. but I, it was my great for me because I was like, "That's a microbiologist, yeah. right?" <laughs> that, <laughs> in my that head. Movie was awesome. Um, but not super accurate in terms of microbiology. Better in terms of the epidemiology. Not really yeah. microbiology. So, Alex probably more for an accurate, more accurate movie. Yes. So Less sexy, but more accurate.
2: Yes. Yes. So my movie's Contagion, I forgot, it's either 2011 or 2013, it's one of those two. Most recent, though. Yeah. Yes, most recent. It was actually a lot to do with how the public or the government responds to an mm. epidemic. So, in brief, we have a virus that's based on bats that mm-hmm. has been crossed over to pigs and to humans. Oh, multiple zoonoses. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then it... Causes symptoms and death within two to four days, so it is super fast acting. It can be transmitted very easily by simply c- coming in contact with the person. If you if I hold a cup and I give it to Celso, like he okay. will get affected. It didn't really hmm. make much sense, like <laughs> how that would be the case. But like, hmm. apparently, it's transmittable just by simple contact or sneezing and coughing as usual. But beyond that, it really talks about like how we should respond to an epidemic mm-hmm. so obviously it is a new virus we do not know how to respond to it there are no vaccines to it it just spreads like wildfire because it happens in Hong Kong London and San mm-hmm. Francisco all those majorly populated areas mm-hmm. and the government doesn't know what to do so it, it really t- tells you like how hard it is to mm-hmm. like deal with this because mm-hmm. first it tells you like we need to culture the vi- virus in a cell that doesn't, and without killing it, mm-hmm. so that we can study the virus. Mm-hmm. And then we need to develop vaccines. Mm-hmm. And we go through a, a list of mechanisms, whether we kill the, vac- the virus and give it to a person, we attenuate the virus right. and give it to a person, types of vaccines, yeah. try antivirals. We just go through a list. And mm-hmm. most of them don't work. Mm-hmm. Like, I think specifically, it was the 58th. Um, monkey trial that gave them the actual vaccine, wow. and after that, the FDA had to review it.
0: You're right. It's like how many people die exactly. while all yeah. of this is
2: happening. And yeah. then the issue becomes how you're gonna like distribute Give it and yeah. who's gonna get it and how you're gonna make it and like who's gonna wow. pay for it. Wow. And like the yeah. issue is in the modern world, these are an issue. And right.
0: even though there's things in place, it's just so hard. Exactly. I guess.
2: Yeah. And it will really would take years to completely get rid of this and And coordination exactly so if something like this does happen it really it's not going to be as it it really going to it's going to take a huge toll on humanity and i honestly think we got rather lucky with h1n1 the fact that we could develop a vaccine in a rather timely manner. I think mm-hmm. in two in two thousand nine, I think people were most people were getting vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I think that was really fortunate for all of us. And yeah,
0: fortunate. Yeah,
2: exactly. unfortunate
0: yeah. fortunate that it, you know it, that we it were ahead happen. of the mutation. Yeah, virus, exactly. We really. were
1: ahead of the curve on that one. And I think also, like I mean, the red tape that you just mentioned that will influence the time for successful treatment or prevention of something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's important to also acknowledge that the red tape is necessary to, mm-hmm. to to a certain extent where it's yeah it's for safety it's but uh, just good like it's a how fast it. can you move but yeah right? exactly can how we make fast? it more efficient of course we can <laughs> well i but, yeah, think the, the is summary
0: difficult. is contagion mm-hmm. is the most realistic in yes. that it yeah. actually looks into real problems mm-hmm. that we are dealing with and why something would be so fatal because of all of these exactly the issues we run into and probably that's why apocalyptic movies have these crazy save-the-day scenarios. Yeah. Because at the point, usually, there are no governments. There are, like, <laughs> ten people surviving around yeah. the world. Or there are people, like, in <laughs> yeah. ref, like, seeking refuge in random parts of the world. Uh-huh. And, and that's it. People are just, like, we, if we do find a cure, right? And that's kind of, you know, mm. that's why Brad Pitt infected himself. Um, or with movies like I Am Legend. Yeah. Like, you know, it's just... If you find something, you just go for it. Yeah. But in the real-world scenario, when it's actively happening, mm-hmm. and when you have governments and, and boundaries and geography and mm-hmm. all of these constraints yes. and bureaucracy, it's hard. It is. It is really hard to get ahead of the curve, which is why I guess it's, it's, it's more sexy to have these apocalyptic movies, but not <laughs> yeah. realistic. Exactly. exactly. I yeah. mean,
1: there, there'll be some realism too. but you're right. I mean, uh, who I, would we really sit through a three-month incubation time if you get bit by a zombie right. and, like, watch the movie? You just be like okay it's three months later for six months you know like it's it's you're right it's for Hollywood purposes mm-hmm. they have to be made in a certain way but this is why podcasts like these are important because mm-hmm. we tend mm-hmm. get to sort of separate debunk, re, debunk certainness yeah. but at mm-hmm. the same time also educating people on, on right. where Hollywood is right where Hollywood is wrong right. and nevertheless please once again, for your own sake, go watch all these three movies. Yes. These are really right, good right. and entertaining movies, and they and, bring yeah.
0: at, like attention to mm-hmm. to infectious diseases, right? Yeah. Which I still always like. I feel like scientists yeah. watch it and love like you know critiquing it and picking it apart. But at the end of the day, we're like that was pretty badass. Yeah, yeah. it was awesome. <laughs> like regardless uh, yeah. <laughs> of how, what we think and regardless of our personal objectives, I guess mm-hmm. as scientists we know it that you need it. this in the media to be able to uh, to be talked yeah. about. What I kind of wish is they had more movies focusing on developing countries Yes. because that's a trend I observed that in all of I mean granted it's Hollywood but a lot of these movies are very much like you know oh Brad Pitt from America WHO yeah. saving the world when it gets to America yeah. you know or Contagion yeah. which was very much find patient zero once it already spread everywhere yeah. else yeah. Whereas looking at, I think it'd be really interesting to look at, you know, the start of a crazy epidemic Mm -hmm. or a crazy virus that's coming out of a very geographically isolated region Mm -hmm. or parasites Mm -hmm. and and going through that and, you know, teaching people through movies and media about what goes on in the developing world and how hard it is for them to deal with things like a cholera outbreak which is so simple but so scary and would make for a great storyline right so i think that's what we need more of yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, more than all of the developed world zombie apocalypse
2: scenarios yeah and if i may point out like just one last thing i think the moral lesson of like today's podcast is that we do have to support research into Mm -hmm. infectious diseases and i think contagion shows just that i because like the person who figured out how to culture this virus in cells was a professor from S- San Francisco. It's not a government lab like stuck in Atlanta. Yeah. It is right. everyday hardworking scientists that figure these benchwork, basic out. scientists. Exactly. Like if right. we, the more research we do, the better prepared we will be. The more antivirals and more vaccine development methods we have, the better off we will be. Right. We have to be prepared, and the only way to do that is by research.
0: Correct. So yeah. I think that's a perfect end mm-hmm. to it. Essentially, science is really, really important. Hopefully, you all have a pretty good idea of very diverse microbiology <laughs> yeah. at this point. We threw a lot of information at you, but the big takeaway is, I mean, bench scientists and basic scientists do the work. That's where the funding goes. Yeah. If you have a new drug, a new vaccine, that's, it's going to come from the bench, mm-hmm. and yeah. that's where the funding needs to go, and it does need to go to infectious diseases, which there's clearly not enough of, as everyone pointed out with their specific bug. I guess and
1: I guess people think of the, like the CDC and uh, WHO like all these major organizations but they need to understand that these organizations themselves mm-hmm. and the government mm-hmm. they all actually rely on basic scientists to do the brunt of the work correct and the, and that's that's part of it. And so you have to keep funding us. Right. You have to keep funding Fund but, us! Give yeah. us money. That's yeah. the biggest, if not you, the podcast, yeah. but just
0: like us personally. Give my yeah. research money. Exactly.
1: I mean, could I have? Could my pockets be heavier? Maybe. You know, it's a good thing. <laughs> but it's just one of those things where people. I guess that's that. There's a disconnect. A lot of a lot of us really think that the CDC, the people who work there, they are heroes. But at the same time, they also rely on us knocking out the basic mm-hmm. understanding of any of, of most things mm-hmm. and then they can come in and do the more specialized sort of uh, mm-hmm. uh of uh, implementation yes yeah.
0: yeah all right and with that hopefully i mean personally this has been my most fun episode hopefully yes. y'all have enjoyed uh listening to us and learning about basic microbiology and epidemics and the next big pandemic um and you know keep up with us next time for our next episode thank you and yeah i guess Goodbye. we'll see y'all soon <laughs>